a career missionary in China for 29 years. In high school, I was pretty much focused on, you know, sports and girls and rock music and studying hard so that I could get into university, so that I could get a degree, so that I could get a good job and go on about my life, you know, my purpose-driven life. (laughs) So I hated uh, foreign languages, and I couldn't stand writing term papers and reading poetry. So I did pretty good in math and science. So I figured in high school that kind of set my trajectory, you know. I could cope with physics, and so I'd go to some school and get myself a degree in, you know, science or engineering or something like that. And then I would go about my life, you know, get the good job and the good company, entry level, of course, but professional. And then you kind of bide your time and work hard and go up the corporate ladder. Uh, Eventually you find a wife. You know, you buy a house, have kids, then you buy a bigger house. (laughs) Maybe if you're prospering, then you can get a vacation property and a boat, you know, all those kinds of things. So that was what I was looking at in high school. And I knew very little about the concept of absolute truth. I didn't have any real sense of personal relationship with God. And now here I am, 66 years old, looking back on my life and thinking, wow, it's so different from what I anticipated. (laughs) And I look back on my life and I thought, well, man, in high school, I would never have guessed that I would have been to seminary where you have to learn dead foreign languages and write term papers. And would go to Asia and learn two Chinese languages enough to minister and preach in them. That instead of owning a house throughout my career, I rented just about everywhere I lived in Asia. And I would have gotten most of my income from the contributions of others. That's how my life has turned out. And actually that kind of describes the career missionary trajectory. A lot of people that we went to seminary with, you know, and they went overseas to Asia or Europe or Africa or to serve the Lord, and they're getting ready to retire. And that's what their life kind of has looked like. And in the course of our career overseas, we've served in two different mission organizations and worked alongside highly trained medical doctors or a hospital administrator, or a businessman, or somebody who is an educator, or church planner, or Bible teacher. People with pretty high levels of training. And their lifestyle has pretty much looked like ours. In high school, you know, there was this concept that people would mention every once in a while. They call the American dream. I don't think anybody talks about the American dream anymore, does anybody? But 
You know? All those people, including us, their lives didn't so much turn out that way. The American dream. And if you ask these people, including us, I'm sure they'd report to you that a lifestyle as a career missionary has brought all kinds of benefits and enrichment, but also a lot of sacrifices. Why do these people do these things? What is their mindset? What are their values? Why would they pursue such a lifestyle? Well, the Apostle Paul is a pretty good example of somebody who was a cross-cultural missionary for his career. And the passage we're going to consider this morning, Colossians 1, 24 through 29, gives us a glimpse into his mindset. I call it the mindset for missions. What motivated him? What did he think about his life and work? Paul wrote this paragraph to the church at Colossae, a church he had never been to, kind of by way of introduction. He was saying to these people who had heard about him, this is who I am. This is what makes me tick, so to speak. Paul wrote it for their edification, for their building up. Not so that each one of them would become a Paul, but so that they could look at what he's saying and reflect on their own lives. And I hope that we'll do that this morning and benefit from what he has written. See if I can get my... Slideshow to work, and it doesn't seem to be working. Help. There you go. Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, we have prayer and praise every Sunday morning at the door, almost without exception. And a lot of people will stand up and talk about their suffering. And I have yet to hear a single person stand up and say, Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. <laughs> I've been here for over three years, and nobody has ever said that. Now, this is a remarkable statement. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I've tried to give a little title, distill it down to something that's easily memorable, to reflect the meaning of what Paul's saying here, and I came up with this one. Maybe you like it, maybe not. Give up comfort for suffering. I think that's Paul's mindset that he's expressing in this verse. I rejoice in my sufferings. I don't hear that he has an attitude of grudging acceptance 
or resignation in the face of his sufferings or complaint doesn't even seem to be a prayer request. I rejoice in my sufferings. You know, he's indicating a willingness, an eagerness, something that you might even say he's excited about. What's his rationale here? Why would anybody say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake? Well, you read the rest of the verse and he seems to feel that his sufferings link him to Christ in a very special way, that they are beneficial and necessary. I think he's saying this is the way God does things and I'm part of that, and so suffering comes with it. It's like there's no other option. What is his focus when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings? Who's he focusing on? Well, he says it at least, I guess twice here, for your sake, for the sake of his body, the church. His focus seems to be what we frequently call horizontal, God's people. And I think to a certain extent, knowing what Paul writes, it's anticipatory. People who through his ministry will come to faith, I think he's probably including in his mindset here. He rejoices in his sufferings because he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, we're all good post-Reformation Protestants. (laughs) And we know that this sounds like heresy. Because nothing, I mean, Brent will stand here and tell you, David will stand here and tell you, nothing is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I think Terry would even agree. (laughs) He paid it all, right? It is finished. Didn't we sing that this morning? You know where we got that theology? The writings of Paul. (laughs) I don't think Paul is contradicting himself. Okay. So... He's not talking about anything lacking in what I call the atoning pains of Christ. It's finished. He paid it all. There's nothing we can do to add to it. But he must mean there's some other aspect of Christ's afflictions that he can fill up that are not complete, as it were, in a sense. I call that the growing pain. Paul knows that there's a cost to be paid for spreading the gospel. And he suffered in it in his own life. Christ himself in his ministry on earth before his death and resurrection, a lot of conflict, a lot of opposition. Those pains have not been completed. Because the church is still being planted. The church is still growing. 
Paul learned this, I think, on the road to Damascus. He was going from Jerusalem to the city Damascus to find the believers among the Jews. He was going to arrest them, take them back to Jerusalem for punishment. And you know there was this great light and he fell to the ground and he was blinded for like three days. And he heard the voice of Jesus who said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus, as far as he was concerned at that point, was dead. He was persecuting believers, the church. But he learned then that this Jesus is alive and that he lives in his body, the body of believers. And so there's a sense, I think what Paul is saying here, when he goes around spreading the gospel and he suffers, Jesus lives in him and Jesus is suffering too. And he's filling up, doing his part to fill up those afflictions which are necessary. Is that the way it is today? Well, in a tiny way, I think we suffered a little bit in China those 29 years for the sake of his body. I used to do safe house training centers for house church leaders. We call them safe house because we prayed and hoped that they were safe. (laughs) But we never knew. And so I would get word about this training opportunity. And it was going to start at this particular time. And I was to meet my contact at this particular airport. And so I would fly up there, and they wanted me to land at night, you know, when it was dark, and you couldn't tell that I was a white person. (laughs) So I would walk out in the airport and meet this guy holding up a sign with my alternate name. And I didn't know his name, and he didn't know my name. And then we would get in the back of this van with darkened windows, (laughs) traveling for three or four hours out in the countryside to a place that I didn't know where I was going. Get there at night, and they pull up, and there's this wall and a gate, okay? And so the gate opens... And the van goes in, and the gate is closed, and that's where I stay for the next week. And I get up the next morning, and there are 30, 40, or 40 house church leaders wanting to study the Bible with me. (laughs) It's kind of amazing, really. And we stayed there, cloistered, as it were, for the week. I didn't come or go. And sometimes it could be right there in the dead of winter and there was no heat. And I come to find that my Chinese brothers and sisters wear two or three layers of long johns in addition to their coats.
coat sitting there in the tables trying to keep their hands warm to take notes. And we had very humble food, many times without meat. There was no shower, latrine potty, dust mites everywhere. That's the reason Donna couldn't go. She tried a time or two and just get sick. And they're willing to sit there in that cold, in those conditions, and study the Bible with me for the whole week with my stumbling Chinese. You know, that's dedication. And I had it the best. I got my own room. I was sleeping on mats on the floor. You know, when I think about this concept, give up comfort for suffering, I know some of you are visual learners, and you remember a picture a lot more than you remember what I say. So I hope you don't get the idea that I'm saying this. (laughs) This is not giving up comfort for suffering. This is the wrong visual image, but rather something like this. Not a martyr complex. Some of you may think this is a martyr complex. But, you know, pressing it a little bit. Realizing that there's no ministry without paying a ministry cost. And that serving the Lord requires time, emotion, discomfort, struggle, disappointment, embarrassment, risk. All of these things. That was Paul's mindset. Give up comfort for suffering. The next one, the next verse. I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God given to me for you. My catchy phrase, give up success for stewardship. Now, what does stewardship mean? What does stewardship mean, Danny? <laughs> it means you have a task. You have a commission. You're entrusted with something that you are responsible for. That's the idea. What's Paul's attitude when he says, I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God? What's his attitude? I would say he's expressing an attitude of serious responsibility. This is not something that he takes lightly. What is his rationale? The reason that he says that is because he got a commission. God called him. God appointed him. He knew that someday he's going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account. And what is his focus. Well, you see it again in this verse more than once. A servant of the church given to me for you. It's that horizontal focus, right? God's people. His body. So Paul, in exercising his stewardship, was not called to or gave up home ownership, corporate and business advancement, 
Apparently, marriage and family, early retirement, accumulation of assets, his golf game, even a double latte every day. (laughs) Big sacrifice. Not a lot of the American dream here. He was given a commission and his desire was to please God. He had a strong sense of responsibility. So, is cross-cultural missions for everybody? Should everybody be a career missionary? I think Paul would not say the affirmative. Neither would I. It relates to your gifts. relates to your sense of calling before the Lord. For me, it was something the Lord began to lay on my heart almost 50 years ago. My early years in college, freshman or sophomore year. And it has been affirmed in my life over all those years and all those experiences by the training opportunities that I have had, the open doors, the continued conviction the generous support of God's people, the commission and recommission of the church, adequate health to continue, all kinds of grace has continued to be able to give up success to fulfill that kind of stewardship, as it were. So Paul wrote this, I don't think expecting all the believers in Colossae to go overseas and be career missionaries. But he did want them to think about their lives. What is your stewardship? What has God given to you? How are you using your time, your money, your resources, your connections, your words, your energy? All these things given by God. Visual images again. Not this kind of image. Climbing the mountain by your own strength, raising your flag, tooting your own horn. I don't think this is the kind of image Paul wants us to carry away, but more like this. (laughs) Burden bearing with a purpose. Maybe unrecognized. Maybe for the sake, like this guy, of his village or his family. Fulfilling a stewardship. Paul goes on to talk about his goals. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. My slogan for this one is, give up small ambitions for great ones. Paul lists some great ambitions here. Three phrases I picked out. To make the word of God fully known. Now by this, I think he's talking about extent. He wants to preach the gospel to every person in the known world. 
Jerusalem, Syria, Galatia, Greece, Illyricum, Rome, all the way to Spain. He wants everybody to know about Jesus. He wants to reveal the mystery, which he identifies as Christ in you. And normally, I think we think about this as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I think that's certainly appropriate. But in this context, talking about world evangelism, Paul perhaps means something a little broader, which I kind of suggested there in parentheses, Christ among you. The community, the coming together of Greek and barbarian and slave and free and male and female, all because Christ lives in our hearts and we are one body in Christ. The only solution that I know of to identity politics today is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And to present everyone mature in Christ. Paul went about not just making converts. He wanted to leave behind mature disciples. He wanted to teach and train and plant the church. He wanted people who, despite their background or lack of education, they were uh, displaying Christ-like character spiritual growth, an awareness of their spiritual gifts, an involvement in ministry, doctrinal stability, all these things. Everyone mature in Christ. What would you say was his attitude when he wrote this? I can't come up with a better description than single-minded He was not diverted by small ambitions. He kept his focus on the great ones. What was his rationale? He expresses that he's living in the climax of history. Do you get that from these verses? God is revealing something that has been hidden for generations. This is what God is doing. This is the watershed of history. Ever since Jesus and until His second coming, this is what God is doing. And you know, there's nothing more important in this world to be involved in than what God is doing. It's much more important than who's going to be the next emperor much more important than the ups and downs of the financial markets, much more important than getting your Ph.D. in Judaic studies. For me, I looked at going to China, and I was aware of these goals, these so-called, you know, these great ambitions that Paul lists here. And I wanted to be involved in those. But I knew that there were very serious limitations for somebody like me going to China. You know, I mean, the government situation, the security concerns, my white skin, you know, my lack of being Chinese, as it were. 
There are all kinds of limitations that I was facing. And I knew that if you make too big a splash as a foreigner, an American citizen in China, you can get yourself and a lot of people into trouble. But maybe by God's grace, you can work with individuals or small groups and not attract too much attention. Do things behind the scenes. And so God opened opportunities for us to do that in China. Visual image. This guy has won the race. He's got the trophy. It's a tremendous time of celebration, but you know, that's really a small ambition when you view things eternally. He may have put a lot into it, but you know, next week, next year, not too many people are going to remember that guy. But the imperishable crown, that's something that lasts for eternity. How are you giving up small ambitions for great ones? To make the Word of God fully known, to reveal the mystery of Christ in you, to present everyone mature in Christ. Are those your great ambitions? Paul's last point, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Give up your power for his. It's really a paradox what he says here. I toil, I struggle, but with his energy. What was his attitude when he said this? Well, I think he had an attitude of hard work. He's going to roll up his sleeve. He's going to give it his all, humanly speaking. But his rationale is the job is too big. I can't do it. It's way beyond me. And his focus in this verse, what is it? The church? God's people? For your sake? No, he shifted his focus. Instead of the horizontal, it's maybe what you'd call vertical. His power in me. Perhaps this is his most important point. (laughs) You know, ministry requires power. And unfortunately, his ministers don't have much of it. But they have him. He lives in them, and he works. And it's a real paradox. It doesn't come easy, and many times you don't feel powerful. You feel weak, and you struggle, and you puzzle, and you wonder how you're ever going to come up with anything, any word of wisdom, or any solution, or how you're going to endure, or whatever's going to come out of it. But then sometimes you can turn around and look back and think, Wow, these people's lives are changed. Wow, the light went on in that Bible study by that one little statement. And it's so rewarding. And you realize that it's His power working within you. I would try in China, in my local area, 
to get a class or two going of house church leaders. And I remember early on in our time in the mainland, I had my champion, my local Chinese believer, colleague, and he really wanted to support me. And he thought, wow, you got some really good materials there. So I said, okay, come up with several house church leaders who want to study this course with me and find a safe place and we'll do it. And so he was going in addition to his house church contacts, to the government church. He knew a brother in the government church who was a businessman, and he had his own business office. And we met over the years a number of times in the offices on like Saturday or after hours, and that was a fairly secure and safe place to have a study, much safer than our own apartment. So he set it up, and I went that first Saturday morning and took the textbooks and was going to explain the course to all these guys. And this guy who was lending the office was sitting there along with the others. And he was kind of off to the side. And I said to him, well, you know, who are you and why are you here? And, you know, he said, well, I'm just, you know, going to audit. I'm going to sit out to the side, you know, I mean, this is my office. And I don't know why, but I said to him, Here's a textbook, join with us. And he didn't meet any of the qualifications, you know. I had told my Chinese colleague, well, we need somebody who is, you know, a a leader, somebody who is already in ministries, who has been a Christian for a number of years, you know, familiar with the scriptures. All these are good, you know, qualifications for a class like this. This guy was a fairly new believer, and he went and sat in church. He'd never really read the Bible. But he took a textbook, and he kept coming every week, and he was a student. Not only a student, he had the gift of teaching. And so after we've been studying about six weeks in this course, he's going to, going to his government church, and they ask him to speak on a Sunday evening. And so he stands up and speaks and has this tremendous you know, load of information And he said, I didn't know anything to tell him other than what you told me, so I just told him what you told me. (laughs) And they loved it. And I never had that opportunity. And people were taking notes. And then the next time he spoke, there were more people there. And then they began to ask, would you speak to the youth group? And would you take over the adult Sunday school class Sunday morning? And then after a while, there were 400 people coming to Sunday school Sunday morning. And then they said, would you preach? He wasn't ordained. He was a layman. Matter of fact, he was a member of the Communist Party. And they began to ask him to preach on Sunday morning and fit into their preaching rotation. And there were sisters sitting there who would transcribe his message, photocopy it, and give it to other people. Then they began to take videos of this guy and duplicate the CDs. And then they began to ask him to teach and train others. All this, I was just studying these courses with him, you know, behind the scenes. And I would have never had those opportunities. God is great. You never know what's going to happen. Donna, too, you know, with her classes, with university students, atheists, Not interested in God, interested in the Bible as she relates in uh, 
her book, Dragon Ride, and God worked. Ladies on the street, gentlemen that she would meet, form relationships, began to ask questions, talk to them about the Lord, and they came to faith. Not this visual image. Not just using your own strength as much as you can accomplish, but His strength. Far beyond anything you can imagine or begin to approach. That's the image I'm trying to communicate. Paul's mindset for missions. Give up comfort for suffering. Give up success for stewardship. Give up uh, small ambitions for great ones. And give up your power for His. What's your mindset? If you were to take out a little sheet of paper this morning and write down your top three values, the things you're really interested in and that you put your time into, would they at all reflect these values of Paul? May God give us all grace as we try to be involved in the building and extending of God's kingdom. Amen.